and welcome to another installment of Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a great deal of eyesight in order to possess a lot of vision. I am, as always, your humble correspondent and host. My name is John Steinberg, and I'm joined alongside by my wonderfully talented co-host who goes by the name of... Santino Maoni. Yep, you guessed it. I am back. John is back for another phenomenal edition of Visionaries. We're going to jump into our first topic. John, you picked the quote today for Words to Live By. Tell us what the quote is, and then we'll dive right into it. Right. So again, uh, for Words to Live By, we are trying to focus on quotes that really steer us on the right path as we venture out into the great wide world and into our own lives. So I thought it might be fascinating to examine a quote by a little gentleman goes by the name of Homer. Here's the quote. The journey is the key. So when you hear something like that, Santino, what comes to mind? What do you think he was driving at? Or how would you take that quote and uh, put it into practice in your own life or yeah, your feelings, thoughts. The quote is very simple yet very complex in my opinion because it's only about, what is it, like six or seven words. Uh-huh. It's, not, it's not a very long, lengthy quote. However, when I hear the quote, I think about just focusing, on the, focusing in the moment, on the here and now, enjoying the journey to where you're going to get to. Because a lot of people, myself, I know a ton of my friends – we have goals, obviously, that we want to accomplish. And I'm meaning I'm talking long term goals, obviously, excuse me, um, long term goals. And I think a lot of times as people in general, we get caught up with worrying about, oh, okay, like, I, I we're in the journey right now, but I need to get to this point. I'm not at this point. I don't have so and so many followers on this social media account. I haven't done this, this and this, yada, 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 etc. All that kind of stuff. When we don't just take a moment to sit and go, damn, look at everything I have right now. I've done all this stuff. Look at the journey I'm on. Look at what I'm doing right now in this moment. That's kind of what it makes me think of. Like I'll use an example from my life. Just recently on my uh, sports podcast that I have at school, we interviewed former Super Bowl champion LeGarrette Blunt, who was a running back in the NFL. And for a second, I kind of just stopped. And instead of thinking about, oh, well, where is this going to get me? How is this going to, like, how are people going to receive this on social media? All this stuff. I kind of just went, damn, I interviewed LeGarrette Blunt. We interviewed a, a former Super Bowl champion as a part of my journey to get where I want to eventually get to in my career. That's p- pretty sick. And I think that's what this quote is trying to say, that you need to appreciate the journey. And the journey is almost not necessarily maybe more important than the destination, but it is just as important. And if you want to take it as that, possibly even more, if that makes sense. Sure. So in my own life, I just got married, as listeners <laughs> may know. Yep. And if I was somebody who merely anticipated the exclamation point in an event, in this case, the actual wedding itself, um, then I'd be sacrificing all of that wonderful planning that went into everything (laughs) along the way. So that would mean me taking the parts of the whole narrative out that include things like going to the venue and tasting the items that would uh, appear on the menu, Uh, dealing with our wedding coordinator, conversations with my wife-to-be regarding what color the flowers that are festooned all across the venue and on the tables would be, uh, the music situation, what songs would uh, we be picking for our first dance, the mother-son dance, the father-daughter dance, etc., etc. If I derived no pleasure and nothing useful from those experiences, then all I'd be left 
with would be the actual wedding itself. And this took a year plus, this took like a year and a half to plan. So to come out of a year and a half's worth of planning and uh, dedicating time to something is selling that whole endeavor a bit short. So it's up to me to appreciate those moments that if you allowed yourself to, you could reasonably cast them aside as being uh, minutia, stuff that's not totally important, stuff that's not meant to be completely memorable. But that's the thing. Everything is meant to be memorable. Yep. So in the case of Homer, a gentleman, and uh, when you quote somebody like Homer and you're reading uh, a short biography and you're looking for the uh, date of birth and uh, all you can find is experts guess that he was born somewhere between the 6th uh, 600 and 700 years BC. <laughs> there's no date. Yeah. Um, there's no year. There's no last name. Uh, just Homer. It's just Homer. Uh, it's a little bit, uh, it's hard to relate. However, and this is what I constantly remind myself that uh, be they president, senator, or the person working at the 76 station, they are all privy to the same overall human experience. No one knows what awaits us when this experience ends. No one knows why this experience is here in the first place necessarily. So what do we have left? We have our daily lives and the things that are meaningful to us. So take everything as important, even the stuff that you don't like, because as the gentleman who, and I wanted to um, have a quote from Homer because he was also famously visually impaired. And as I guess I could say legend tells us, he actually dictated his iconic landmark poems, the Iliad and then the Odyssey. And if we're to learn anything from Homer, it doesn't matter what his last name was or if he actually wrote anything down ever, or if he merely spoke everything aloud, or you know what? It really kind of doesn't even matter if it was Homer who gave the world the Iliad and the Odyssey. It exists. It helps people figure out how to approach their daily lives, and people can derive significant meaning from those contributions. So really, the journey is the key. Definitely. We'll move on to our next segment. We're going to go to Handprints Hall of Fame. And as always, like John likes to describe, you can imagine our inductees putting their hands down in the dirt in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater. John, please tell us we are waiting. Who is the member we are inducting into Handprints Hall of Fame this week? This week's enshrinee is none other than noted oceanographer Amy Bauer. An oceanographer. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to uh, find someone in a field that you really would never guess someone could achieve at the highest levels with a uh, visual impairment. Uh, so Amy Bauer, her visual impairment didn't really manifest till a little bit later in life. She attended 
uh, Tufts University and then the University of Rhode Island where she received her PhD. And uh, then she was diagnosed with both retinitis pigmentosa, the same condition that I have, and macular degeneration. And yet she's been able to mount an objectively illustrious career in her field. As of this recording, she is the chair of the physical oceanography department at Woods Hole Institute of Oceanography in Cape Cod. And uh, if you type in her name on Google, uh, you will stumble upon a blog that she has penned. Uh, and there's a couple of different sections on the blog, one of them being how does Amy spend a day on land and then one uh, concerning how she spends a day at sea because here's what she's doing she's studying assessing ocean currents uh, she's someone who grew up enamored with the weather and when she found out that the ocean actually contains its own unique weather system she fell head over heels for the pursuit of uh being an oceanographer. And uh, on this uh, section with Amy at sea, we learn that aboard uh, these big old boats that head out from Cape Cod to places like Greenland, uh, it's up to Amy to distribute the, oh, I like to think of them as uh, buoys in the water, but let's just call them uh, scientific tools. Maybe that's more appropriate. She's the one who distributes the scientific tools in the water so that they can collect the necessary data so that oceanographers at the Woods Hole Center can uh, make assertions about the ocean and uh, what it's up to, what's going on, what we need to know, what we should what we should uh, be prepared to handle, all of that stuff. And she does all of it without being able to see. I, for one, think it's kind of a miraculous journey that she's decided to mount. Uh, she has been honored in a number of places for her work. Uh, she also provides lectures uh, as a teacher to students at the Institute. And she's an overall inspiration to anyone who believes that it's not possible to become an oceanographer, to become a scientist, to become a mathematician. All of those fields are readily at play. And we have people such as Amy Bauer that we can thank for guiding the way. Yeah, definitely. And I, the other thing too I wanted to touch on, she... Amy has, you know, the Ocean Insight blog, and it's an outreach program that she has for anybody who's blind, visually impaired, any like visually impaired learners, and it's for all ages, and it just kind of gives um, insight. It's, it was created to introduce students to careers in geoscience, not necessarily specifically in, ocean, in oceanography, but in geoscience in general, because a lot of people who are visually impaired or blind don't feel or believe they can have, there's a, there's a career option or they can even have a career within this uh, general realm or general field, like whatever word you want to use, general field. So again, Ocean Insight, it's meant to make them aware that, you know what, listen, 
I've done it. You can do it. There are opportunities. There are options. There are career paths for you to go into if this is your, what your passion is and this is what you're interested in. And I think that's great that she has that kind of platform where she's using you using her success, using what she's accomplished, using her story to help benefit others and to and try to try to give others opportunities that they would have not necessarily known were available before her, if that makes sense. I think that's a great program that she started. Yeah. So for handprints of Hall of Fame, past inductees include people like Andrea Bocelli, Ray Charles, Jim Abbott, Jake Olson. And I thought it was fascinating to even know honestly to even know that somebody such as amy bauer exists in a field like this and she's out there executing her craft at the highest conceivable levels uh again demonstrating what the real mission statement of this podcast is uh, made to be doesn't have a lot of vision but we consider miss amy bauer a true verifiable visionary and as such as our most recent inductee into the glorious handprints name we salute miss amy bauer for her contributions a visionary and a role model definitely great induction into our handprints hall of fame we'll move on to our next segment where we have profiles and courage we're actually we had one of john's family members last time his sister-in-law who suffered from breast cancer uh, we got to talk to her, get a little insight about her life, her experiences. Now, this week, I took it to my side of the family, and we're going to talk to my grandmother, Ann Mayoni, about her experiences being a two-time breast cancer survivor, getting her insights, same way we did last week, and just hearing what she has to say. And thank you so much for being with us. How are you doing? I'm good. Hello, John. Hi there. How are you? Very good. Very good. Nice to, nice to speak to you. Likewise. Awesome. All right. So we're going to get right into the questions. The first question I want to ask you, I'll I'll preface it first. Last week we had on John's sister-in-law who was a breast cancer survivor, my grandma as well, not just one, a two-time breast cancer survivor. So my first question I wanted to ask you, um, you know, before we kind of get into the specifics of it, I was curious about, you know, at the time, the kind of role that your family played in helping you kind of get through that difficult time, the difficult time in your life when you were dealing with breast cancer. Oh, well, I will say this to you, uh, and Santino knows this of me. God has given me a lot of strength. I was able to carry that through with that strength and that faith. I had young children at that time, so it, some things were not even told to them. I had many people surrounding me that helped me, but basically because of that situation with having a, I'm trying to think of the ages, 10-year-old, 7-year-old, 4-year-old, it was a different circumstance maybe than this other young lady. Yeah, and, and I, I think I think it was because when we spoke to John's sister-in-law, again, like she was she was obviously younger, I believe she was, what, like in her mid-30s? Mid, 33. Yeah, yeah. So about early to mid-30s. So it is a different situation, and, and it's, again, right, different circumstances, me, obviously. Let me, let, me, let me please tell you this. At that time, yeah. I was 46 years old, and that was 37 years ago. I am very, uh, how do I say this, knowledgeable about breast cancer. The situations then were very different than they are now. Yeah, for sure, especially because of the time difference and just, again, the passage of time and just, again, how, how people can cope with it, different technologies, all that kind of stuff. But I wanted to get into something else. You mentioned, obviously, that 
you know, God, God was with you. He's given you, he's given you so much in your life that he was part of the reason that kind of helped you get through that time. Was there anything else specifically that kind of, or even just elaborating on that, anything specific that really motivated you to push through and persevere again during those tough times that you experienced? Okay. I think my grandson knows me by now. I have <laughs> been given a great deal of strength and abilities within myself. I know how to inquire where to follow through. Uh, I was very lucky because of all of that. Um, basically, you know, I don't know this young lady. At some point, I'd love to speak to her. But at that point, I had been told that I probably would not be able to survive this. But uh, I have a great deal of medical knowledge generally, which Santino knows about. So yeah. I was able to pursue these things. Yeah, definitely. And I know, obviously, when I was a kid, like you, I know you worked at St. Francis Hospital and you would um, like help do charity work for them and just do events for them and stuff like that. You would always bring me around the hospital and just show me different stuff, which, again, she would kind of joke with me a lot saying like, oh, I want like, you know, he she wanted me to go to the medical field. And I was always like, yeah, not really my thing. But it was definitely something that was a part (laughs) of her life as she's mentioning the medical knowledge that that you definitely you, you definitely have that knowledge and that for sure probably helped you during that time. Um, exactly. I'm going to hand over to John. John, you can ask some questions. Hi, Ann. Um, so Hi, John. you had mentioned, so you'd mentioned uh, your initial diagnosis came. You're the mother of three. You said that you were 46 at the time. Uh, would you kind of take us there to what your feelings were when you were given that initial diagnosis? Again, you'd mentioned that the doctors weren't sure about the survival rate. Um, so kind of your feelings and okay. you also- Let me give you, you uh, I, I was actually, I would like, I'd love it so, at some point if you were willing to speak to your family member too. There is a condition that you have to understand on the maternal and the paternal side of my family, even then, many, many people, seriously, when I, they look at my list, they don't believe it, have had breast cancer. Uh, something a little extra. There was also a male participant, which is unusual and gives credence to all of this. It it was a very different situation, I have to admit. I had been checked periodically because my breast had always had these cysts. So it wasn't something that just automatically came out of no one, nowhere. And I have to be honest, the doctor who Uh, examined me in September of the prior year, had cleared me, and then by May of next year, I was deeply into having a full-blown case of breast cancer. So my life wasn't generally the way it normally would be for many people. Is that making Um, sense to you, John? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So what were your, okay, so you said that you had a family history of it and um, a great deal of medical knowledge, and maybe you suspected that something was there, but when you were given that diagnosis and told, look, we're not sure the survivability idea here, um, yeah, kind of what were your feelings? Um, Well, I will tell you this. I don't normally advise people to do this, but the fourth doctor and I actually I'm I don't know how long you want me to be on but at those times the president of the United States and the governor of New York State both their wives had breast cancer 
And because of my familiarity, shall I say, I was able to see even their physicians. But the fourth doctor I saw was at New York Hospital in the city. He was very direct with me. I worked very closely with him. And I believe that is the man that saved my life. We worked very diligently together. I had, which is very unusual, a full year of straight chemotherapy, which is not even known now. Yeah, that, and again, like having to go through that and just, I can only imagine the thought, again, like the thoughts and like the doctors that you had to go through and just everything that you had to deal with. And again, like you said, you had people with you that were there to support you. You had God on your side there to support you. And he's like, I, I, in talking to you and how, how obviously I know you by now, like you keep saying, I know that he's a huge part of your life. So obviously that, like you mentioned, was, was a huge part of this journey and experience. I did want to ask like though, two final questions. The second time that you that you were diagnosed uh, prior to the first time, were the feelings kind of the same? Did 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 you already kind of go into it with the you know what I beat this once I can do it again kind of mentality? What was your what was your mentality going into that second the yeah, second time you were diagnosed? I have to say to you, the second bout came only a year after the first, so it would be ridiculous for me not to say that I was devastated. Mm-hmm. But I had learned so much more about the disease. Um, and I'm being honest, I was securing the feeling that I could beat this again. And I continued on that road. As I said, went to, to many other, there were actually four doctors in the end. And um, very, very difficult to explain it exactly, but that is exactly what happened. Yeah. And then four years ago, It was a question of changing cells in my body, and I had to address that too. So honestly, what this was for me was a very long road, and I guess I have to say there must be a reason I'm here and that my work on this this planet is still not done. It's the only way I speak of this to anyone. Yeah, for sure. So I was wondering, you'd mentioned... Uh, that you were diagnosed 37 years ago. So that puts us in the 80s, Reagan's president. What was the climate like? No, no, he, he, he wasn't president. It was the other gentleman. Give me oh, some more the president. No, in, no. Uh, Bush? The other. Okay. No. This is got to be further back. Anyway. I can't think of his name. I know, I know the governor was Rockefeller. <laughs> For some reason right now, I can't think of the name of the president, which in a sense doesn't matter. It was just a crazy coincidence that both their wives were suffering with it when I found out I had it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what was the, the climate like just in terms of, so in 2022, we have Breast Cancer Awareness Month where people don you know pink ribbons. Um, there's a large conversation in the culture about it but what was the climate like when you were diagnosed Um, was it something that you spoke about to your friends or what what was the kind of the no no that that is basically who i am as a person i'm still with saint francis hospital i've made connections to other other women then and i still even do now you know to help out at that time i guess my personality was a bit different than other people might have been. 
I didn't join any groups for support, if that's what you mean. I went out and sought medical knowledge. I had friends who had already passed from the disease, but also some who had survived. But the climate was very different than it is now. I'm still involved in this. Yeah. I still am. Uh, that's a lot of years ago, 37 <laughs> years ago. It and was it, very, it, very different. It does make sense that the climate, though, was different back then because, again, obviously, as time changes, focuses are going to shift, technology shifts, awareness about a exactly. certain illness, disease. Like we've seen that with mental health, same way that as time has gone on, more awareness Right, now that, that it's, coming to the, it's coming to the future more, exactly. Yeah. This is, and exactly, it, and it's, and it's, how, this is exactly the patterns that, that travel within any disease. So it basically, honestly where your strength has to come from within and you have to get on this road and find out as much as you can and that, where you can go to get the answers. Definitely. And I, again, like it, it's great that you're still part of the community too, because have something like this, I think kind of, it, it doesn't, it doesn't leave you in ter- in the sense that it, you're, you're, you're tied to this. You have an investment in it. You want to help out any way you can. You want to invest your time. Yeah. That's great. And it's great that you do that, especially with ladies nowadays that might be suffering from it. The last but, question. But I will. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I want to say something to you, to both of you. This disease in a way of me being able to seek out others and helping them has honestly come back to me. If you understand what I'm saying to you. Yeah. It does. It, it gives me meaning the fact that I can help other people in this way, just yeah, as no, I'm going to make it. No, I'm going to make a general knowledge, and I want John, of course, to hear this too. What all of you are doing there in LA, I have told Santino, this is a gift he was given to be able to participate in what all of you were doing there. So what you are doing there, and what I know, my grandson is gaining from this is exactly what I have gained by helping others. Yeah. And it's, and it's been a joy just to be exposed to this different world and be immersed in, again, like immersed almost in the, in the, in the disabled community, because it was not, not something I was fully aware of before, but again, doing the podcast with John, all the experiences I've had, like you just mentioned, it has been great. It's been eye opening, and it's been similar to the experience that you've had in terms of the fact that you can give back, you can provide knowledge, you can do all those different things that really will come out in the end and benefit others. Um, Nana, th- thank you so much um, for coming on the show. We really appreciate your insight and everything you were able to tell us about the disease, tell us, t- telling us your story, and you know, give, just giving us giving us some fun conversation, some good conversation about a topic that I think should be talked about even all more. Right. Despite so I, I, I want to just say this. I'm going to thank you and John for what you are doing. If I could help in any way, I would. And I'm sincere about that. I think it is a remarkable organization that you have. And before we let you go, uh, just real quickly, advice to those like my sister-in-law who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, Yeah, your, your advice to our listeners who may be dealing with challenges such as breast cancer and how to overcome those obstacles. Okay. I have this thought, knowledge is power. You have to gain as much knowledge as you can uh, about the subject. As I said, I didn't go into any group settings, 
I found that working one-on-one, as I mentioned to you, maybe I would like to speak to, is it, I don't know, the family member of yours? It's my sister-in-law. It is very, what is she she to you, please? She's my sister-in-law. Your sister-in-law. Okay. Very important to find someone to work with you. Uh, it, It is important. I have to say that. Someone that you find trust with and uh, and feel comfortable with. It, it is to me that and, and also the, the most knowledge that you can acquire. Usually it comes through physicians to somehow, please, dear God, get to the right physicians as I did and I'm still working with one. So anyway, uh, I am actually going into church right now. So I'll <laughs> pray for the two of you. Well, oh, thank you thank so you. much, Anne, for taking the time to uh, to visit with us and uh, educate our no, audience. This bit. was this was an honor for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate okay. it. Bye bye now. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you, Anne, so much for coming on the show. Um, we really appreciated the insight you were able to provide for us. Um, John, I thought that was a really good interview. Though. I thought it was a good discussion. She kind of gave us good insights, especially due to the fact that it was the the interviewees had had suffered. From breast cancer at very uh, differently diametric times in uh, like in their lives where my grandma kind of experienced it more in the 80s and your sister-in-law I believe it was a little bit more recent in the in the um, last I guess you know a little recent mainly in, in the 21st century so my whole thing is I just found that very just it found it interesting just to hear from both sides I don't know what your thoughts were but no absolutely and in considering the climate of whether it was the 80s or the 70s I'm not sure if there was a stigma around breast cancer. Um, It was something that you talked. It was fascinating. Yes. To hear uh, from your grandmother and her reflections on that diagnosis and uh, besting uh, breast cancer on multiple occasions. Definitely. All right. Move on to our next segment, respect and representation in the media. John, what do we pick for this week? Well, Santino, my younger co-host, you are uh, an MCU fan. Oh, tremendous. Definitely. The MCU, Marvel yeah. Cinematic Universe. Love it. The uninitiated. So, as or, or, or the uncultured. If you don't know what the MCU is, I'm sorry, but like, come on. You got to know what that is. I well, mean, we have listeners of all ages. I guess that's long. true, but MCU, man. Sure, Dude, sure. Anyway, continue. Uh, so, <laughs> I thought it entirely fitting to center our focus on one Matt Murdock, known to the world as Daredevil. So for this segment, um, we're going to be talking about both the Netflix television series, uh, and then I'll touch upon uh, the disastrous 2003 Ben Affleck vehicle. Your thoughts on the, uh, well, the care as somebody who worships at the uh, altar of MCU. Yeah. What were your thoughts on, on the Daredevil character on, uh, on the Netflix show and how blindness is uh, rendered in that program? I love the show. I love Matt Murdock, one of my favorite characters in the MCU. Um, even, not, even not having seen the show, I've read some of the comics of him previously. Love the character. Um, the first thing that popped in my mind with the, in terms of blindness, when we talked about Don't Breathe, that was the main thing that was kind of in my head throughout of just the un, the the unrealisticness of it of the fact that yes it is insane to see a superhero that is you know visually impaired obviously but at the same time like we talked about in don't breathe the things that um 
that man was able to do the the blind veteran in that movie very unrealistic and it painted in uh um a not so correct image of how blind people are just in everyday life and i think that despite the fact again i loved the show it's it's i think it does a great job and i i only watched the first few episodes it was a very very well done show for me to me the writing was very good again only a small sample size but that was my opinion on that in terms of the blindness again maybe a little bit unrealistic maybe if younger kids like you said for the uninitiated who aren't very aware or in tune with the disabled community the the visually impaired community it could maybe get lost on some deaf ears in terms of that and they might not fully they 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 might they'll they'll make assumptions about what they think maybe like oh if if he can do that then blind people can do anything and like we've said we've established before with like how you say well probably not a great idea for me to operate a plane etc such like so and so so those are my like initial thoughts but again i love the show i recommend i recommend you watch it but in terms of the blindness that's kind of where i thought i don't know if you agreed but um i was initially conflicted if you'd asked me when i was uh, a bit younger a little bit less uh, mature and um, <laughs> circumspect, I might have said, oh, get this character out of here. Like, this is ridiculous to have a blind But at this point in my life now, at the age of 35, the life experiences that I've had, I fully endorse the character. I sign off on the depiction of blindness uh, in both the Netflix show and the uh, horrible Ben Affleck vehicle. Uh, so the character was actually dreamt up in the year of our Lord, 1964, by a gentleman that the initiated will certainly be acquainted with, uh, Stan Lee, uh, in consultation with Jack Kirby. Talk about a visionary, Stan Lee. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and actually, Stan Lee was initially reticent uh, to put this character out into the world because he believed that the visually impaired community would take offense um, to Matt Murdock slash Daredevil. Much to uh, his surprise, they loved it. Uh, He actually received letters from organizations like the Lighthouse, which still functions today, stating that no, 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 people are not offended by it. They love when staff members read the comics aloud uh, to members of the blind community. So with that endorsement in pocket, the Daredevil comic has now gone on for verging on 60 years in that time, upwards of a thousand issues of the comic have collectively been released. A number of immensely talented artists, uh, your Frank Millers, even Kevin Smith, uh, most famous for Clerks and um, some of his movies in the 90s. He also penned a Daredevil comic. And the movie with Ben Affleck, uh, okay, let's address it. Um, This is one of those infamous movies, uh, a la Gili or Mr. Magoo uh, that we talked about last week. Yeah. Um, I hadn't seen it in quite some time. Oh, another Jen Garner vehicle. Um, (laughs) Inadvertent to consecutive weeks where we talk about a Jennifer Garner film that I am pretty sure she doesn't like. In this movie, the blindness is rendered in a responsible, entertaining manner. 
where this movie goes astray is with the casting of people like Colin Farrell as uh, the villain Bullseye, which, from what I understand, makes very, very little sense uh, if you have an understanding of that character from the comics. We get Michael Clark Duncan uh, of the Green Mile fame in as Kingpin, and um, it's a real mess. It's a real mess. It's frankly hard to even evaluate the depiction of blindness because this film needed uh, a heavy-duty edit. Heavy, heavy-duty edit. And I know that the theatrical version, the PG-13 version, wasn't necessarily what the director had envisioned. Oh, and Santino, another example here. So the director, prior to helming Daredevil, wrote the scripts for the Grumpy Old Men franchise uh, and presided over multiple rom-coms. His last movie mm. uh, actually was Letters to Juliet. Oh, yeah. So I don't know what the uh, synchronicity is there between Grumpy Old Men, Letters to Juliet, and Daredevil. <laughs> but apparently the so folks who greenlit the picture did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is not worth uh, your time, dear audience. I'll just tell you. The movie, yes. No. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't personally watch it, but if John's... Oh, uh, you're... You, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm better off, I'd say. I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and Especially then, after Mr. Magoo. God. Oh. We're not getting out again. Yeah. So, yeah. And then... Our apologies to uh, our wonderful audience for um, foisting that upon you. Hopefully it oh, yeah, wasn't yeah, uh, too definitely. painful. The television show initially on Netflix, I'm pretty sure they took it off the service. It's on Disney Plus right now. That's where I watched the first few episodes. But oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did watch the series when it came out on Netflix. Um, I believe the first season was 2015. Yep. The show ran for three seasons, uh, 39 episodes. So you loved the program. Uh, how did you feel about, so in the theatrical Ben Affleck vehicle, uh, Michael Clark Duncan plays Kingpin, uh, and in the television series, he's portrayed here by Vincent D'Onofrio. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you think about the, uh, the villain here, about, uh, about good old Kingpin? I always kind of liked um, the villain as a whole, just from like, again, like I, even when I played uh, Spider-Man video games, Kingpin was always kind of one of the main villains Spider-Man had to go up against. So like, I, I've been exposed to Kingpin before. Um, again, from the small sample size that I experienced, I did, I, I did like the villain they chose. I didn't think, um, trying to think of the wording I, I i liked i liked the cast that they put out for this this show i'll say i didn't think that anyone was miscast and i don't really think marvel ever really even with tv shows movies they never miss casting wise i don't really think you can go from like chris evans to robert downey jr to mark ruffalo in the movies i'm pointing out jeremy renner scarlett johansson all of those people and even tom holland to spider-man i mentioned spider-man but I feel like they don't miss with casting and I did think they got it right again, even with, and just even like having Kingpin in the show, you know, putting everything together, the actor, the character, the villain, the specific villain. I liked it all. I think that um, I will say that even though I did say that the, the blindness in terms of him as a superhero, my, in my opinion is kind of a little bit unrealistic. I did. Um, I do like the fact that he's kind of like, a, I believe it was a, a lawyer was his position, right? That he, mm -hmm. Yes. So I like, I just kind of liked that like back and forth. It almost kind of gave me, I don't want to say, it almost gave me like Superman vibes, like Clark Kent almost, where it's like, again, like he wasn't a lawyer per se, but it was that kind of thing where it's like, oh, like my old man, are like lawyer by day. And then 
Daredevil, like Daredevil by Night. I liked, I liked that kind of back and forth storyline of like how you're one, you're regular the one minute, and then you come out and it's, it's just like you're, you're a superhero. So I, I, de- I did enjoy the show. I don't really, I don't, I feel like we might not necessarily disagree, but we might have maybe a little, some differing views on, um, on just the way I guess blindness was depicted. But I think we can, I, I don't think we did a bad job of it. I just think that it falls a little bit in line with the Don't Breathe franchise of just the possible unrealisticness of it. And if somebody who was not privy to living with somebody with visual impairments, being exposed to somebody, like, like let's say I had watched, I mean, again, I'm older, so it's, it's different. I'm kind of more focusing on kids because MCU, obviously a large part of their audience is, is younger, younger kids. If a kid were to watch that, I do get the sense like a seven-year-old would think, oh man, man, like dad, look at that. Maybe a visually impaired person could, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I kind of got that sense, but again, show was great. Casting, I think was, was pretty much almost perfect. I, like I do with everything in the MCU. I believe that I'd recommend watching the show hundred percent. And yeah, those are my, that's my thoughts really. Uh, one of the things that the daredevil character exposes the world to that I really appreciate, even though um, it's rendered here, yes, in a pretty unrealistic, um, overwrought manner, is Daredevil sleeps in a coffin with running water, uh, with heavy-duty earphones and uh, earplugs. I can tell you, as uh, someone, while not being blessed with the ability of Daredevil, uh, there is a bit of truth here. Uh, the other senses are indeed heightened a bit. I've been sleeping with earplugs plus these big old bows uh, over like wraparound headphones uh, for years now. I, I just have to. If I don't, I'll hear everything and I won't be able to get to sleep. Yeah. So I did appreciate that, even though it's completely over the top in, uh, in this instance. But there were some re- re- like there well, were some I, things that were real that, that that showed the reality of it that, I, that do happen, yeah. Not on that level, but yes, in implying that I get that mm-hmm. you're saying it was over exaggerated, but the overall just point that it's making that yes. yeah, that is something that people again like yourself do like do in fact do. So mm-hmm. it did have it did it did have those aspects, like you said. Yes. Uh, okay. A question. You're from Long Island. Yes. Have you been to Hell's Kitchen before? I've never been there. No. Okay. Uh, I've been to New York a few times. I've never actually been to Hell's Kitchen, but from my understanding, it's like a few blocks. Um, so this this isn't really a, um, a grappling with the uh, question of how blindness is rendered on the show, but I was under the impression that, okay, I've seen the Marvel movies. I know about, uh, what is it, the Sokovia Accords and, and all of that. Yes. Yep. So, so we're full on inventing names of countries that don't exist and things that haven't actually happened. Yeah. But yet, for some reason, Hell's Kitchen's an actual place. That, mm-hmm. That's not made up. No, yeah. And um, I've just never been, but yeah, I know I've, I've heard of it from my right. I've had friends so, who have gone there. So, yeah. So, what? I'm not sure why we didn't just make up a different name so that it <laughs> doesn't kind of tie us into the real world. And yeah. then um, my understanding makes it so that we have all of these competing factions uh, in, I think, season two were introduced to the Irish mob. Uh, we get the Yakuza at certain points, all these different competing mob-like organizations who are vying to control Hell's Kitchen. 
and I'm watching this going, well, okay, that's, that's cool. But isn't it like just a handful of blocks? I mean, I don't know. Shouldn't you say like, it would be the equivalent of five different factions of mob types who are out there going, all right, who among us is going to control Silver Lake? I go, well, okay. Yeah. Silver Lake. But like, (laughs) wouldn't you want to control Los Angeles yeah. or you're really focused on like this one Minor, pretty small yeah. neighborhood. So, but that's neither here nor there. And I'm, I doubt other people really even think about that when they watch the show. Something interesting though to point out though, it is. Yeah. Um, but with respect to, uh, to the visual impairment here, uh, I was initially uh, annoyed by the character, but I've grown to truly appreciate that the visually impaired community, even though it's completely over the top and semi-ridiculous, that we are being represented as uh, human beings who have, I mean, his love on again, off again thing with Karen Page on the show. And he is a human, okay, he's a superhero, yes, but he's also a human being. Definitely. uh, And... I don't think any negative, unless it's the example that you cited earlier, would ultimately come from having a character like this be presented in such a popular uh, television show. So I do sign off on uh, Daredevil, the television show, absolutely not uh, the movie. And I'm interested to see, like, I know that the character made a cameo appearance in the most recent Spider-Man film. He did. Yep. In the beginning. Yeah. So how that, whether I imagine it's only a matter of time before Marvel attempts to reboot the character. He will um, be, I've been, I've been reading some like not fan fiction, but some different uh, leaks and things like that. Matt Murdock will eventually be a part of the MCU movies in some way. I don't know. I don't know exactly how they're going to bring him in because they're not going to leak that much, but I can say here from what I've read, if I, if it's wrong then it's wrong, but from what I read, Matt Murdock, Daredevil will be in the MCU movies at some point in the near future. And I predict that given the societal penetration that Marvel has, uh, they will do a fine job in creating a character that is able to adequately represent uh, the visually impaired community. Cause I can anticipate different organizations, even though I talked about when the character was created in 1964, they received endorsements. I can anticipate if there's anything objectionable in the slightest that members of the visually impaired community will uh, raise proverbial hell. So I do imagine that the character is going to be treated responsibly uh, with compassion and with a degree of humanity. So I think we all have that to uh, look forward to. Definitely. All right, we'll move on to our final segment of the episode, Connecting the Dots, where John is going to give us a little story like he always does, tells us about his experiences in his life, and you know, just we're, we're going to listen and we'll, we'll ask him about it after. So John, what are you going to tell us about today? Inspired by the achievements of Amy Bauer, on her blog, uh, the Insight website that you referenced yeah. earlier, there's a section detailing the technology that she utilizes in order to keep up with uh, everything. And uh, I thought it only fair to discuss some of my experiences with the assistive technology and learning how to use it, et cetera, et cetera. 
so for the uninitiated, the advent of the iPhone, Apple's somewhat magical invention of uh, the iPhone, you're basically given a computer in your pocket. And uh, up until I attended the program at the Hatland Center that I've referenced in um, prior episodes of the show, I completely punted on being able to use the phone. Uh, I had somebody who would help me out, sending emails, sending text messages, uh, checking, even something as um, mundane as checking the Polestar concert update uh, app on my phone. I had to have somebody help me out with that. So when I graduated and I had no idea what I was doing, uh, when I graduated from St. Mary's, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to use any of that type of stuff. So when I was taught how to utilize uh, the screen reading program, uh, it really did prove to be something of a godsend. But it wasn't instinctive. In other words, I would not have been able to figure it out had I not been taught how to properly do it. There are a series of different key commands. So for example, in order to go from page, like your home screen to the second screen, you have to swipe three fingers from right to left across the screen on your cell phone. In order to have the phone read everything aloud that's on a given page, you swipe two fingers down the phone. To turn voiceover on, you have to tap three times. To turn it off, you again tap three times. I won't go on and on with the uh, actual key commands that you have to use, but I will say that this is not instinctive. Um, there's really no way that you would know to do this unless you explicitly were shown how to do this. So I do know people who have visual impairments and uh, who are currently struggling with things like technology, uh, being able to, as I said, keep up with everything. And I would urge any of our listeners who find themselves in this position uh, to seek out assistance. There are very helpful resources available. I, I know about the state of California, uh, the Braille Institute. There are a couple of different outlets. There's one in Anaheim. There's one in Los Angeles. There's a number of different outlets for this kind of help in the Bay Area. And I know that assistance uh, in this vein does exist in different pockets around the country. But I would urge folks to forget about how difficult it's going to be uh, to learn all of the stuff. Just reconcile yourself. It's going to be annoying. You're going to initially struggle, but remember what it was like learning how to write in cursive for the first time. It's the same principle. Riding a bike, being able to skateboard, surf, swim, any and everything like that. Uh, there's this saying that sometimes I lean on, anything worth doing, it's worth doing right but it's going to take time. So don't allow yourselves to try to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, uh, being distracted by how quickly it seems like everyone around you is operating their phone. They're on this page and now they're on this page and now they're on this website doing this, they're doing that. Uh, don't 
allow all of that to get inside your head and steer you off course. Hop in. You know what? I'm willing to bet I've actually had this experience. You can amble into an Apple store, meet with someone at the Genius Bar, and uh, they will give you some pointers. They'll show you how to use voiceover, how to turn it on, turn it off, go from page to page, et cetera, et cetera, so that you aren't dependent on others to help you construct emails, to help you read text messages. Independence is something that's deeply important to me. It's paramount for my own life and for uh, the lives of many in the visually impaired community that I know. So free yourselves from the dependency on others when it comes to the cell phone. Uh, there are solutions that do exist and there are people out there with the knowledge to better assist you as you wrap your head around all of it. Because once you do master that technology, and you know what, it's not as difficult. Uh, learning Braille was significantly more challenging um, than picking up a lot of the useful tools necessary to operate a phone. Hop in to the local Apple store. If you have a Braille Institute that's nearby or other such organizations, help someone, or have someone help you do a Google search wherever you happen to be. I guarantee there's some outlet. And if there's nothing locally, then there are national centers, the Foundation for the Blind being one that I can think of that will help get you on your way to being able to master this unbelievable technology because it's not lost on me that we spoke with your grandmother earlier, Santino. Yeah. And for visually impaired members of society, we were 25 years away, 30 years away from this kind of technology mm -hmm. in the 1980s. So it's one of the great engineering marvels of our time that we're able to walk around with a phone in our pocket, with a computer in our pocket. Potentially a small computer. Yeah, with a small computer in our pocket, enabling us to send email, to make calls, text messages, go on every website that one can think of. All of that is readily available to be accessed. Um, it just takes determination, patience. I've preached that a lot on this show and will continue to do so. It does take a bit of patience, but if you have the determination and the patience, you will ultimately learn how to use the assistive technology. And who knows, maybe it'll guide you toward a career like that of Amy Bauer, and you'll be the next great, important American oceanographer. Yeah, it's just, it's, I take away what I've taken away from all of your um, you know, insight and stories, patience, perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, go out and do it yourself. You want to accomplish something, you got to do it. Like you said, go to an Apple store, go talk to the Genius Bar. They're, they're, it's called the Genius Bar for a reason because they're kind of geniuses about all this technology. I couldn't, again, even myself being able to see my phone, there are times, many times, com computers even, where I'm like, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, what does this mean? What, stuff like that, where technology is something that can be lost on anybody, but specifically focusing on the visually impaired community, it's the main thing to take away that you have to have the want to do it, the want to accomplish it, the want to be independent. You have to want to be, um, to just 
be your own person, be able to go to, and to be able to do things like John's done, go to live in downtown LA for two years, go to Clipper games whenever he wants, go to a Laker game whenever you want, go, which is never, well, for you, Sorry. yes, <laughs> for John, never, no, but go to a Laker game whenever you want. If you're, if you're want to go watch Lakers, go ahead, go to a concert at, you know, now it's the crypto, but Staples Center, if you want to go do, uh, do that, being able to do, like, I can tell a story, this guy was directing me around downtown LA, he lived here for two years, yes, but somehow, I we were trying to go to a restaurant. I forget exactly what it was. Just go get food somewhere. Sonora Uh Yeah, I believe that's what it was. And I was getting lost. I was like, "Where are we going?" Like, I think I made a wrong turn. And John was like, "Hold on." And then he got out his headphones, got out his maps on his phone, and we found it in the next five minutes. And I was just like, "Okay." It was just it was insane just to see that again. He lived here for two years, but still, it like not. I'll say this from an outsider perspective: not knowing somebody in the visually impaired community, not being exposed to a lot of people like yourself. I, I came in with the, the, the thinking of, oh, well, maybe he's, you know, I'll have to direct him. Like he may, might not know where he's going a lot of the time. Like he'll need me to handle all the map stuff. And, ha- and mo- not, like, I think on more than one occasion, at least that one, you ended up directing where I, where I was supposed to go. And it like totally just kind of shifted where my mind was in terms of what pe- the d- people in the disabled community, people in the visually impaired community can do in general. So I think, again, just taking away from the story perseverance you have to have the want to do it go do your research gain knowledge like my grandma kept saying knowledge is key knowledge is power and what and basically every situation that you're in and yeah you'll be able to achieve what you want to achieve and i think again that's just always the message john tries to put across just trying to give you guys insight and just let you know if he can do it so can you guys um that's yeah and that that's going to wrap up our uh, final show together actually i'm leaving on saturday so we'll be doing this over zoom from different parts of the uh, different parts of the country obviously but it's been great being here with john again like we always end every show go follow our instagram at visionaries underscore podcast we are now on apple Podcasts and spotify so you can find us on both of those platforms um send us a dm on the instagram if you want to just reach out say anything comments ideas even concerns whatever it may be just reach out Thank you guys so much for listening to another great episode of Visionaries. We will see you guys next time.